Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. This is Star Talk, and I'm your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist, and I'm also director of the Hayden Planetarium at the American Museum of Natural History right here in New York City. And my co-host today is Maeve Higgins. Hey, welcome back. Thank you for having oh me. Oh my gosh. And today we're featuring my interview with Vice President Al Gore. And we'll be talking about, of course, climate change. What else? That's all that comes out of the man's mouth. And, the, of course, the future of the Earth. And I'm not going to do that alone. I know a little bit, but not enough to carry this. So we go into our our reservoir, to our portfolio of experts. And so we've got Andrew Revkin, who previously served as an expert on Star Talk for our uh, my interview with the head of the EPA. And that was... Um, Gina McCarthy, yes, thank you. I guess that was like your audition, and then you made it. <laughs> you made it to the radio show. I'm very glad to be back. <laughs> so you're uh, you're a senior fellow for environmental understanding at Pace University. That sounds like you made up that title and have and have. <laughs> yes, senior, not junior fellow, senior fellow. Oh, no, they came up with that part of, a, of environmental. It was like, what should I, you know, should I be a communication? Blah blah blah. Anyway, this is okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad you got to declare your own title, and you you founded the New York Times blog. Uh, what is it called? Uh, dot Earth? Is dot Earth. Dot Earth. Very, very nice. Eight, more than eight uh, Since 2007, yeah. Yeah, so that's almost nine years ago. And you've been writing about climate change, like, for more than 30 years, and you brought this crusty old <laughs> weather-beaten book with you, Global Warming, Understanding the Forecast, written in 1992. Indeed. Yeah. Only 17 when you wrote that book? <laughs> no, no. Not quite. <laughs> so, let me ask you, this, your book... I've read some pages of it. Forgive me, I haven't read every page, even though you have put them all online because it's no longer in print. Correct. But one can find all of the content. And you were boasting off camera <laughs> that nothing had to change because your foresight was impeccable. Does that remain the case? Well, uh, I'll, I'm not unique for one thing. There's been tons of people, this, the science on, science on global warming, the basics, you know, greenhouse gases trap heat and make the atmosphere warmer and the world, the oceans will warm up. All that stuff has been clear for... The New York Times said a really good story on this in 1956 by a guy. You also wrote. <laughs> <laughs> by the immortal Valdemar Kampfart, actually. Valdemar Kampfart. Yeah, wrote this article in 1956. No. And, and, it, and every beat, <laughs> every beat in that story has been in every story you've written. I've seen about climate change ever since. Do, do you know anything about the reaction to that story in 1956? No. Where people like... Campfire's got to get it together. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Talking crazy. Uh, that's a good question. There was no social media record at the time. of. Like, we're not talking about hydrogen that. sulfide. Yeah. That's a geek joke, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the active smelly gas in, in farts. Uh, but so, so let me ask this in this book. I mean, you're a journalist, right? So you are compiling, basically, the fruits of the research that's going on among scientists around you. Yeah. Well, are you the only one putting it together and then making predictions? Are we crediting a journalist for predicting the demise of the Earth oh, no, rather no, no, than no. the scientists? No, the only thing in this book that, that I predicted that seems to be unusual is um, there's a line in the book where I say, again, I was writing this in 1991, and I said, perhaps Earth scientists of the future will uh, determine that we're in a geological age of our own making, a post-Holocene geological age of our own making. And maybe they'll call it the Anthropocene. I said Anthropocene at the time. Uh, 
And then and now they call. I thought I was thinking, but I, what I, I was thinking this would be like 200 years from now. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Scientists of the future. Not 30, right? Yeah, no, it ended. No, it actually it ended up being. Um, well, right, it ended up being um, to the year 2000 mm -hmm. when two scientists. Sort so of, only eight years later. So yeah, the Anthropocene eight, rather than the right, Anthropocene. and and you know, but I like Anthropocene better. Fewer syllables. Anthropocene is nice and clear. It's slicker. I, I I still would prefer to have a. That, yeah. So let's let's get to my interview with Al Gore. Uh, as we know, he's been the leading advocate of the climate crisis, and if you follow him on Twitter, that he's punching it every single time. And that was not just a latter day interest of his. He's been active since the '70s, hardly when anyone else was talking about it on a sort of a global scale. And as I understand it, he held, held the first congressional hearings on climate change as his first year as a congressman. So that so that's cool. And of course he did the Oscar winning documentary An Inconvenient Truth. Mm -hmm. Now is that now ten years old. Oh my gosh. Um and so he was also a co-recipient of the Nobel Prize. I forgot about this for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate right, Change. Right, because he has to share that with a lot of people. <laughs> That's right. <Yeah. laughs> so let's get to my interview with him. And I, you know, I start out kind of fun and playful, and and I knew, but I wanted to make everyone else know that the vice president lives in the headquarters of the U.S. Naval Observatory, and we just chatted about that a little bit. Let's check it out. So, how cool was it as vice president to live in the U.S. Naval Observatory? Uh, it was Robert. fantastic. It was fantastic. Nobody knows that's where, that's your home. We have telescopes. I know. The, yeah. The U.S. Naval Observatory. U.S. Fantastic. This and is like the headquarters. Absolutely. And there's a timekeeping device. And the, the atomic the clock. The atomic clock is yeah. there. That's your. I had, you live there. I had Mr. Hale uh, of the Hale Bob Comet come over and give a running commentary <laughs> looking through the telescope. <laughs> That was very cool. <laughs> no, that's that's just a cool thing. I mean, I, I just want to let the world know that the vice president's residence yeah, it's is very cool. on the grounds of the U.S. Naval And even though it's in an urban environment with a lot of light pollution, the longevity of those observations give those telescopes enduring value. Yeah, yeah. So you go, you you and Al Gore buds, right? Well, he, yeah, he endorsed this old book back when he was still Senator Al Gore in 1992. It says Senator Al Gore. Yeah, I know. But 1992, this must have been like split second before yeah, he right i'm sure it was president. when it was going to the printer or i something. feel like it would be yeah. pressure to be friends with al gore like you couldn't just be like hey want to have a barbecue i mean um <laughs> well uh, um, you know we uh, back what, then what a lovely hot day it is i mean yeah. <laughs> I, you know my back then it was me journalist him congressman and and so it wasn't like friend friend but uh, no we've been in touch over the years off and on uh, mm -hmm. For a long time, and, and it's interesting. You know, did you ever go to stick intuitiveness? Stick intuitiveness is a an essential quality if you're dealing with global warming because this is a very hard problem. So, this is not like a one president problem or one pope problem or one. Now, Maeve wanted to know how friendly you actually were. So, what was your friend? What was your question? <laughs> I, I, uh, I was curious. If, I never knew that the vice president lived in the, in the in an observatory. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. does Joe Biden live there now? I, I suppose yeah. so. I haven't haven't asked, but I don't you see why funny. he wouldn't. But you wondering that. if you wondering if Al Gore ever invited him to a party? Yes, That's what you're asking. I think That's really impolite. If the answer is no, <laughs> I'm really sorry. But were you ever invited to? No, have, no. Oh, okay. I've been to I've been to the White House, but not to the Naval Observatory. But don't you think that like that would be a cooler place to live? Even than the White House. Yes, it's completely way cooler. White House is a big house. It's not even as big yeah. as some rich people's houses are. Yeah. So, except it's got the underground thing and a helicopter waiting for you to escape. I other other than that. Tell people about that. <laughs> I was looking online, uh, you know, Cheney, I, I was curious to know what Cheney thought of the, the, the Naval Observatory because he didn't strike me as that kind of guy who would like the telescopes and stuff. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I found that was interesting was that it was part of his undisclosed, lo it was actually one of his undisclosed locations was his house. 
if you know in the term remember if something oh was happening that's in the present yeah, he yeah. could stay there so basically he could stay at his house that's how private he was that his own house was an undisclosed location so maybe it's because nobody <laughs> knows where the observatory is right. they knew it was safe so in my next clip i wanted to know just how where did this interest begin if you're a politician you know often they have a hobby horse but why was his hobby horse climate change we just went there let's find out I always uh, loved science. I can't say that I particularly excelled in it, but I, I always found it fascinating. What did you major in in college? I started as an English major, and mm -hmm. I switched to be a government major. Okay. But I took courses in science, and it was one such course that really changed my life. I walked into a course outside of my field of major concentration that was taught by a great scientist named Roger Revell. He was the first scientist to measure CO2 in the Earth's atmosphere. This was back in the 60s. And he described everything that has unfolded since then. He had a very clear vision of it. And that was really the reason why I got involved as a very young man in trying to understand climate science. It was that teacher who opened my mind and fired my curiosity and... Is he still alive today? No, he's not. Wow. Did he know um, that he had that influence Oh, yes, on you? Oh, you absolutely. Told him. You gotcha. Absolutely, okay. and okay. I became close to his family. Is it possible that were it not for his influence that you might not have ever gone in this direction? There's no doubt in my mind that learning from Professor Ravel was the reason why I got involved in, in climate science. So we absolutely. just never know in life. What single encounters right. can do. That's right. You have a quick Ravel story? Well, Ravel was amazing. He in the fifties, uh, the International Geophysical Year, nineteen fifty-eight. Yeah, uh, he um, he had the wisdom to assign Ralph Keeling, a name you'll probably know, to start measuring CO two, carbon dioxide, in a consistent way on top of a mountain, the Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii. And that Keeling curve, ever since then, there's this little wiggly curve, up, 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 faster. And it goes to higher frequency, as you. Well, it does, meaning that it's with the percent per year. There's a musician who's composed a piece that charts that. It's actually pretty interesting. Really? But anyway, I'll stop. It usually tells me that musicians are running out of ideas when they got to come to scientific plots. Oh, there's a there's a musical wiggle. Let me make turn that into. You don't have to actually compose. So it's one thing to have an interest in it. It's a very, I think, it's a very different thing to become an activist because now you're committing your life and your mind body and soul and energy and and clout and so that's a whole other thing and i wanted to know the transition from just having interest to becoming an activist let's find out what al tells us i always had a focus on the climate crisis and began giving a slideshow before it was computerized i used to have three kodak Oh, projectors. slide projectors. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this... Uh, the carousels. The yeah. carousels, and they would go in sequence, and then... Multimedia. Uh, multimedia, <laughs> right. And it was it was pretty cool. But then when I computerized it, I started going on the road a lot more, and it really kind of uh, morphed into a, a mission that I can't possibly uh, put down. I had the great privilege of working with our mutual friend, the beloved Carl Sagan, mm -hmm. and uh, others who inspired me to do more. And now that's mostly what I do. I, I'm in business and technology, but the majority of my time is as head of the Climate Reality Project and giving slideshows and training people to give slideshows and become climate activists all over the world. So Al becomes a, an active activist uses his political clout to engage it. 
And after he gets out of office, he has a movie that wins an Academy Award for Best Documentary, I think it was, uh, uh, An Inconvenient Truth. Yet there's still people denying. So could you explain to me, you sit at that intersection. Yeah. You write for the public, yet you read what the scientists say. So yeah. what is your insight into that denial? Well, um, should we blame you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I thought of this. In the 80s, I figured, okay, it's another pollution problem. And then I figured, okay, it's a technology problem. And then I figured it's a communication problem, which I think Al Gore thought it was too, because he, mm -hmm. they did the documentary. But it's, it's much more profound than that. When you look at uh, energy trends, energy needs, it's not just about denial. Um, do you think there it's are, like something to do yeah. with like how humans don't do what's good for them? Like this <laughs> fundamental thing where even as individuals, we know what we're supposed to do. But we don't do this. Well, you know, in the waiting room there, if there was a pile of apples along with the cookies, I think we still all would have been reaching for the cookies. Well, because cookies uh, taste good. That's right. Yeah. And apples are kind of fibrous and stuff. And but, also there could be yeah. some pesticides on the skin. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I mean, that, that... That's right. There are no pesticides in my homemade chocolate chip cookies. Exactly. Right. Exactly. At that period, the sort of 2005, 2006, was when, when this really became political. And in Gore, completely well-meaning... And his approach to the issue still is was a politician and still framed it even in the film there's this sort of partisan aspect well, he had poli a politician's baggage going into that film yeah right. um and, and it, by the way most documentarians have some kind of political baggage even yeah. if it's not from their from elective office absolutely right? no one ever accused uh, who's the other guy who made michael moore, michael moore of being republican right they, mm -hmm. they know he's coming from right. from the democrats worldview yeah. regardless right so they're they're kind of like political scientists and sociologists have studied like what happened and and part of what has happened is it became a political badge it's like abortion or gun rights and there's global warming but that means people have to see the politics more than they see the facts and that's dangerous because sometimes you can have a political leaning and maybe that leaning is correct right but, just because you're a politician doesn't mean you're lying yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although it gets to, uh, you know, and I should tweet that. Should I tweet that? Just because you're a politician doesn't mean you're lying. Right. <laughs> and, and Al, you know, and, and what he did, and, and, and while in office, he had this dream of having an earth monitoring satellite right. that would continue to get data on this very problem. I don't think it was, it wasn't ever, it just recently launched, right? And a little bit of a tribute to him after the fact. Absolutely. It was called the Discover Satellite, which is a, a cheap acronym, really. What would it The Deep Space Climate Observatory, DSCOV. Are. Just, you leave out a vowel, you, you, you play with it, you get to the Discover satellite. He's always had the putting in extra vowels and leaving out vowels. He's had that, hasn't he? Wasn't he the potatoes guy? Uh, no. Oh, that was Dan Quayle. That was Dan Quayle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I always yeah. mix up. She's foreign, so she, she'll, okay. she'll give her a couple more years in country and she'll get all her poets. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Al Gore. So, yeah, so we, I had to, in my conversation with Al, we, it had to go to that point because it had, it had been launched and we had some good data. So I didn't want to get his, was it one of his babies that he's now proud of? Let's check it out. That was in uh, January of 1998 when I proposed putting a satellite out at the L1 point mm -hmm. where, of course, uh, the satellite will remain between the Earth and the Sun and co-orbit the Sun. And now it's out there, a million miles from the Earth, roughly. Mm -hmm. And it so it's just parked there, and it's just looking at Earth. Yeah, the side of Earth that happens to be facing the sun. So it's it's always full Earth. 
Yeah, right. so you get uh, 14 blue marble style photographs every single day. They mm -hmm. can simulate the rotation of the planet now. It's a single image satellite, but you piece together the images that's and right. you make a movie of that's, the rotating Earth. That's right. You can see storm systems form and take right. shape. Right, right. And so just congratulations that it finally well, got Thank launched. you very much. Yeah. I, I'm very excited about mm -hmm. it. And in 2016, they will have finished calibrating one of the other instruments on this satellite, which will give us for the very first time the planetary energy balance. We've never had that. Mm. We can measure the energy coming from the sun to the earth because it's a single source, but the energy that's radiated back out and reflected back out into space is over 360 degrees. So we've never been able to measure that. That will give us a much, much more precise way of understanding the climate crisis because we've been focused on temperature. But most of the extra heat content goes into the oceans, and it has long residence times there. Whereas the energy balance day by day will now be able to be measured precisely. So that's as, as scientifically literate as you could ever hope a politician to be. Bingo. Speaking about the total energy balance over the full mm -hmm. surface of the Earth rather than in one region or another. So, Andrew, just what, give me your reflections on this, on him as a politician, on these projects, on the future of the world. Well, he, everything he just said reflects something that's essential in figuring this problem out. One is sustained observation, and we're really bad at that. And uh, it's, this is with stream gauges, the U.S. Geological Survey, or acid rain levels, or CO2. Uh, it's been a fight just to sustain that measurement of CO2 uh, mm -hmm. on that mountain. So, so having a having a long-term vision, like he, you know, he wouldn't even be in office when the satellite would be deployed, and having uh, the ability to to harness uh, Congress to to budget that. Harness Congress. Well, that to, sounds kinky. To, uh, yeah. <laughs> to sort of work with Congress. I wonder something. Wait, 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 wait. So you can say all that you're saying. Yeah. But what matters is whether people who vote and people who represent those who vote, who vote understand and agree with it. If they don't agree with it, you can talk out, out your ass and it doesn't make any difference. So, well, so what, so, so I've tried, I failed. So now I blame you, journalist. Yeah. Yeah, Andrew, well, the journalist. I think there's something interesting in the sticking to it thing and the uh. same, the consistent and working over years rather than some kind of like spasmodic Hercules move. So yeah. is there something that like normal people can do each day to like work towards helping? Like it seems like he, that's what he's trying to do. Well, uh, uh, there's a guy named Michael Sivak at University of Michigan who just who studies transportation and he just recently calculated what would the th one thing be that everyone in America could do that would make the biggest difference? And it's like an order of magnitude difference. It's drive. So for other, for normal people, that'd be a factor of 10 difference. <laughs> sorry, yeah. You said order of magnitude. Sorry, sorry. Okay, that's fine. It's jargon. So right. That's fine. In, it's, in it's time, a multiple. Time. It's driving. Okay, driving. Uh, either driving a car that's twice as efficient or driving half as much. And that's a 5%. Well, not at all. It's a, well, I'm, well, right in New York City or wherever you can. Uh, so it's a, that would be a 5% reduction in the country's uh, emissions of carbon dioxide. Um, everything else, like making your house more energy efficient, whatever, is like literally 10 times less impactful. But there's America, Jack. I know, I know. I know. And Texas <laughs> is a big, long state with lots of driving to do. So it's kind of like, uh, and by the way, uh, incremental change is not going to get you there. You know, that's why... Yeah. Since that same period, 2006, I've been writing about our utter disinvestment in the basic sciences that you would need to foster to take our emissions of 
this gas to zero later in the century. When Star Talk continues, we're going to take on other topics such as where are we with clean energy? Where is it now? Where is it going? What's on the horizon? What new technologies will enable it? I've touched on some of them. I've been to some clean energy conferences. It's kind of fun to see what human ingenuity can come up with, but is it enough or is it too late? When Star Talk continues. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the US on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx ground is faster to more locations than UPS ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good, because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any of you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Welcome back to Star Talk. I am Neil deGrasse Tyson, and I'm with my co-host Maeve Higgins. Hola. Are you still just off the boat, or do, when do we no, stop? No, I've been here that? for two years now. So, no, okay. Yeah, I think to a ten-year mark it makes you a New Yorker, apparently. So, just eight more years. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Have you eaten a hot dog off the street corner yet? <laughs> oh yeah, I thought you were going to say off the street. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think the ultimate meal is like a slice of pizza crouched over a trash can. Okay. I've definitely done that. You've definitely done so. We'll, we'll count you among us. <laughs> Uh, And of course, we've got environmental journalist Andrew Revkin, who's been thinking about this almost his whole life. And we're featuring my interview with Vice President Al Gore. And we talked about how he got started, what prompted him to care about any of this at all, his activism, and wondering whether there are any sort of solutions that exist to solve the climate crisis, which is basically a CO2 crisis because our sources of energy are fossil fuel based primarily, especially transportation. So what came naturally in the conversation was just to talk about solar energy. I mean, why not? And let's just see where where that went. Check it out. 
What have you seen coming up on the horizon? Because I don't think anybody's going to change until the sun is cheaper than coal. Yeah. Right? Until that happens, you can beat people on the head. This is America, Jack. I'm not going to yeah. do anything you tell me to do unless it's cheaper. <laughs> well, I have good news for you. Yeah, what's that? It is now cheaper in a growing number of places around okay. the world in a and in a growing number of regions here in the U.S. So the trend line is good. The trend line is good, and it's not only a trend line, it's a trend exponential curve. Okay. And we both know that in some areas of science and technology, like computer chips, for example, or digital cameras or LEDs, they yield to R&D, and the technology gets better and cheaper at the same time. Think and about the performance goes up. Performance goes up. Think about cell phones. I remember the first big clunky cell phones back, you know. <laughs> Shoulder-mounted cell phones. <laughs> yeah. Back, uh, back in those days, 1980, AT&T, then the only phone company, really, asked McKinsey to do a world market survey. How many of these can we sell by the year 2000? And the answer came back 900,000, almost a million. And when the year 2000 got here, they did sell 900,000 in the first three days of the year. And now there are almost 7 billion of them around the planet. And the interesting question is, why were they not only wrong, but way wrong? For one thing, they didn't understand how quickly the price would come down, sort of like computer chips. They didn't understand that the technology would dramatically improve as it got cheaper. And in the regions of the world where they didn't have landline telephone grids, all those folks could leapfrog and get telephones for the first time. Same thing is happening with solar. The price is coming down, the quality of the product's going up, and in those parts of the world that don't have landline electricity grids, wow, they are really installing these things so quickly. Now they can be, they can have power when they've never even had it before. That's correct. That's exactly right. So that's the number one most exciting new technology. It continues to get cheaper every single month. It is now way cheaper than electricity from coal in many regions. Within three years, in 47 of the 50 U.S. states, it will be cheaper than electricity from coal. Wind is already cheaper in most of the U.S. and the U.K. than electricity uh, from coal. Efficiency doesn't have the same kind of sex appeal because it's a lot of things, but the new digital tools and the Internet of Things that are helping us become way more efficient, way more quickly. Managing. That's reducing. The yeah. The same thing that the Internet did for bits of information, we're now seeing an Electronet that's doing that for electrons. So, Andrew, you, do you share that optimism? There's great stuff happening with, with those technologies. And by the way, just to be clear, because as given my physics background, I must disclose this, that wind power and hydroelectric power is also solar power because the sun is driving both of the, the sources of energy from both of those. Oh. Yeah. And coal, I, and coal is too. It's just been in the ground for hundred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. But it's not renewable. No, no, no. Uh, renewable. I know. Yeah, yeah. It's all, yeah, it's all traceable to the sun know, at I some know. point. Um, and, well, actually, volcanoes are not traceable to the sun. We have geothermal energy. Right. That's all. That's all Earth. From yeah, 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 yeah. Tap it from within. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, solar, solar is great, and and the the uh, deployment rates are way up, and the incentives are great. But you go to Germany, which has got the greenest sheen of any country right now, and you look at their fossil fuel use, both oil, gas, and coal, two different kinds of coal, one of which is pretty darn bad, and it's hardly been blunted. They're basically turning off their nuclear power, and they've been uh, substituting renewables, which is great for them in terms of their priorities. I I differ with the, the nuclear issue. But but when you look at that fossil, if, the, if Germany can't really blunt its fossil fuel use, 
then you look at the global trends. Wait, wait, wait. wait. I, I missed what you said. You're saying in Germany, yeah. they are their the rise of renewables is real. Oh, yeah. But they're only replacing the sources of power that they otherwise had but were not fossil fuels. And also not producing greenhouse gases. Yeah, it's a policy decision that you know, Germany has been freaked out more about nuclear power than a lot of other countries. So, but then take it to, so that's the German case. So I didn't know that. Mm. Yeah, I, I could email you some, or okay. actually go to Dot Earth, my blog, and you'll see some stuff. But wait, 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 wait. I got you right here. Don't yeah. be sending me to your blog. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> I have the man right here. I ain't going to your blog. Just, can we establish that okay. fact? Good, okay. Good, good, good. okay, fine. Okay. A. B. Isn't it true that half or more of all energy use is in transportation. And transportation does not have an obvious electrical option except for um, passenger cars. But a truck, I mean, yeah, a, yeah. a Tesla, for example, most of its weight is battery. Yeah. You cannot have a truck mm -hmm. carrying any kind of meaningful cargo if most of its weight is in its own batteries. Yeah, yeah. So if that's the case, then yes, you swap out everything else, but you're still stuck with, yeah. uh, unless we have some other new way to move stuff. Well, there, there's uh, there's work being done on fuels coming directly from solar energy. Um, there's there's it's a big long leap to do that. Biofuels that exist, you okay. know, theoretically, mm -hmm. you're taking CO2 out of the air, putting it in a plant, putting putting it in a fuel, putting it back in the air. So you're not adding CO2. But um, when you look globally, uh, the energy demand of the world is, is up, up, up. There are 300 million people in India. That's the population of the United States who don't have any electricity. They don't can't turn on a light bulb. Is that, is that what he people. was speaking about when he was saying that they would skip? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and here's the issue. Whole countries where that's the case. Yeah, but that would be the case if they're all going to stay in rural villages. But we're on an urbanizing planet. And you need jobs in those urban areas, uh, whether it's manufacturing or services. So why can't solar power leapfrog them? It's just not like, see, information, you can have an information revolution in a heartbeat. You say after the fact. Yeah, well. We know that it happened. Well, no, I know. It can in a heartbeat. But, okay. it, but electricity and uh, energy systems have much more, historically, they've had way more inertia in them. And it's, you know, I would love to just sort of do that. Now, you just interviewed Bill Gates. I did. Did anything come out of that related to this conversation? Well, yeah, very much so. He's, you know, he's making the point that all of the gains we're making with renewables right now are great. But... Looking ahead to a world of 9 billion people by 2050, uh, we don't know if it's going to be beyond that. And hopefully most not poor, meaning... And having, if they're not poor, that means they're all using electricity in right. ways that, that abject poor people in developing countries today are not. Right. And, right. and, and, and here's another physics thing. Uh, well, it's a chemistry and physics thing. CO2 is a durable gas. You release it, it stays in the atmosphere, it mm -hmm. stays in circulation. So mm -hmm. it's building and building and building. You, you can't stop global warming by just slowing emissions. You have to go to zero. And by sometime this century. Or find a way to take it out of the atmosphere. Right, well, that's one way to go to zero, meaning uh, net. Um, and uh, and he's investing some of his own money, and he's recruited other billionaires, uh, ranging from Tom Steyer, who's a very liberal, progressive uh, billionaire, to to the Tesla, to Elon, and, and uh, actually, I'm not sure if Elon Musk is one of them. I can't remember. At any rate, he, he's trying to get people to focus on this uh, investment gap for these long-throw but he gets punished because it's kind of feels like a Hail Mary's kind of like wishful. He calls them energy miracles, which I think is kind of a mistake anyway. It's, it makes me think about like in the 1950s when Ireland was being, there was like a big rural electrification drive. And these two old farmers that lived across the across the road from us thought it was a phase. They were like, this isn't going to. It's an electricity thing. Yeah. They just have to ride it out. But we'll be back to candles and beeswax. <laughs> <laughs> these electrons. You know. <laughs> so 
believing like Bill, you know, believing what Bill Gates is, has to say and if he's putting his money there. Yeah, yeah, but there are two sides to this. There's mm -hmm. there's whether people will embrace it. That's the, the Ireland 1950 problem, I mm -hmm. guess, that you're describing there with your neighbors. Yeah. Your neighbors didn't have electricity? Did you have electricity? Yeah, so this is when my dad was a kid, and they oh, okay, had electricity, okay, and thing. then okay. these two old um, bachelor farmers refused. Okay, so so mm -hmm. that that's one hurdle, right? Mm -hmm. Do, will people embrace it? But I don't see that so much as a problem today if, if it's in front of them and it's cheap. But another one is, of course, there's the politics of it. And I couldn't have a conversation with Al Gore without talking about the politics of things. And so let's see how he reads the politics of clean energy. Check it out. What do we need your sermons for if the marketplace is going to take it there anyway? Well, because there is a determined effort to slow down this revolution, okay. not only in the U.S., but in a lot of countries. The old coal and oil and gas and utility companies are using their legacy political power. At the border of West Virginia, is there a mugshot of your face and saying stop them uh, before actually, he comes in? Actually, you know, West Virginia is one of the places where solar panels are being installed very rapidly now. Let's take the example of the case of Florida, where the Sunshine State, the head of the big coal burning utility there said, well, it's also the partly cloudy state. <laughs> they actually make it illegal because the state legislature is in cahoots with the big carbon polluters. They actually make it illegal to buy solar electricity from somebody that installs a panel on your roof. It's one of only four states where that happens. But there are lots of other obstacles that uh, the old companies are are throwing up. And we need to work with the old companies. This shouldn't be a, well, that's my point. a war. I mean, we should a, get on as with some, this. As a former politician, you yeah. would know better than anyone. You can't just bust Recovering. into a state. Yeah. Covering <laughs> You're on the 10th step of your 12-step program. There's a difference, yes. <laughs> you, you can't just bust into a state where people have legacy jobs from multiple generations doing whatever it is they're doing without having some kind of transition plan. Yeah, that's right. And we should take care of the coal miners, for example. Mm -hmm. I've long proposed that. But this is happening anyway. The coal companies are going bankrupt. Mm -hmm. uh, we're seeing China turn away from coal. We're seeing all over the world this massive revolution. One of the questions for those of us who live in the United States of America is, shouldn't we be leading this? We invented yeah, and developed it, these it, technologies. Do we want all these things made in, in China? Uh, shouldn't we get a lot of those jobs here? They're going to be jobs all over the world. They can't outsource who's going to install a panel on the roof. You know, it's going to be a, in a local community. And actually, the so way- So you can't outsource a construction job. Yeah, well, uh, that's as American John, not yet. The robots can't do most of them yet, but yeah, in come uh, the robots off yeah. the container ship. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that'll be an interesting day. Well, uh, that's another conversation, but uh, this is an opportunity, Neil, to lift the prosperity of the global economy in a way that no other project can. It's the most massive business opportunity in the history of the world. Andrew, what countries in the world recognize this as a business opportunity and are taking the bull by the horns? Well, they're recognizing it as an energy opportunity too. And under oh, uh, give me some countries: Bangladesh, uh, Bangladesh through, through the through the process of the climate negotiations. One of the things they pledged to do was to see what we could do with solar, and they have really ambitious targets and numbers there. And what I heard from okay, uh, but the United States is not going to say we're going to do this now because it works in Bangladesh. No, no, right? I know, I know, right. Because I'm wondering, based on what you know in your journalistic explorations, yeah. are there certain countries that if they do it, then they will 
They will shame other countries into doing it, and then you have a whole domino effect, and then the whole world converts overnight. Uh, no, I don't think it's going to work that way. Because it's not that we haven't converted. We used horses yeah. for 10,000 years, right. and within a 10-year period, nobody uses horses anymore right. for anything, Right. essentially, just for entertainment. That happened like between 1890 and 1920. I, know, I, it's, I arrived here on horse. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I traveled by horse, but there was right. the manure crisis. Yeah, the manure crisis. Now, who would have thought that something so permanent could be swapped out so quickly? Because something yeah. came around that was relatively affordable. As Henry Ford said, he wants his workers to be able to buy what they're building on the assembly line. Yeah. And so maybe it's. All this, I, I try to get there in the conversation with Al, but it didn't land. Maybe it's simply economic. The day you can show me something cheaper that uses renewables, I'm there. Not because I gave a rat's ass about the environment, because, I, because I'm saving money. Absolutely, you're right. It has to be that that smooth. Uh, if it isn't, uh, and also in some cases, like with, we have this huge infrastructure for gasoline to put in cars, you know, and so whatever, this is why there are some people still thinking we need a liquid fuel, whatever it is, uh, because the infrastructure, you can't do the, the horse thing in America the way we're with all of our cars and stuff. It's not quite that fast. But But there's a guy named Nate Lewis at Caltech, a solar scientist who conveyed this to me best one of the big challenge here and this gets this is what you said he said we're we're not trying to he said it's not like going to the moon you know in the comparison to the moonshot kind of thing it's like going to the moon when when southwest airlines is already flying there handing out peanuts he said you said this to me a while ago in other <laughs> words we have an energy system it works it's like you plug stuff in and it, and that's it. so it's a substitution for an existing system and that's why if it isn't cheaper every effort so far to make the dirty fuels more expensive. So you're talking about the overhead in our infrastructure will make it that much harder to convert. Now, now they did it with LEDs. They got LEDs now that have screw screw bottoms, right? Yeah, the, yeah. When they first came out, that's not how they. That's not their native state. Mm -hmm. They have an Edison bottom, right? And so, and then maybe new homes would have be built in with DC and not use the. I mean, yeah. but my see my my nightmare as a journalist is I'm mm -hmm. constantly like looking at what people are saying and looking at the data as much as I can. New York City, one, this is a sobering statistic, but I gotta say it. Mayor Bloomberg, before I left- drunk right now, so I'm waiting to be sober Mayor from that. Okay, go. <laughs> All right. If it's sobering, we will measure that. All right. Mayor, before, <laughs> You're gonna walk in a line. <laughs> go. The Bloomberg administration did a survey of all- Bloomberg, the mayor of New York. Yeah, former- Former uh, mayor. Uh, they, they looked at all the building uh, buildings in New York. There's more than a million. And they concluded, based on what is understand about turnover, uh, that in the, the buildings that exist in 2050, 80% of the buildings that exist in 2050, they found, exist right now. Okay. So, we, you know, we all have this vision of a transformed world in 2050. Wait, wait, it's basically what you see out the window. Wait, wait, means, how can there be a million buildings when there's 8 million people? That means we're averaging 8 people per building. <laughs> I didn't I don't fact believe check that, that but, yeah. it, but it's, I, it's in the I don't believe report. it. Okay. I don't believe those two numbers juxtaposed follow as they apply to this city. I'll follow up with you. Yeah. Uh, at yeah. any rate, well, you have your office. I grew up in a building that had 5,000 people in it. It's unbelievable. And that was just a regular apartment building. Supposedly there are a million. In though. the Bronx. Yeah. But okay. anyway, All right. so just think of that stat, though. 80% of the buildings in New York City in 2050 exist now, which means it's a huge retrofit. Yeah, regardless of the number, that's it's the, so it's the not, percent that matters. Yeah, right? it's not like some magical yeah. new energy, zero energy world will be there. We have to work at it in a very, very sustained way. Uh, the efficiency stuff that 
that uh, former vice president talked about is uh, challenging to, to, to do and, and that kind of thing. And then the, 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 there is opportunity in, in, in the other countries that haven't built their giant cities yet. So but that's hard too. It's all hard. Dreamers, all of them. <laughs> you have to be, everyone, but this this requires sustained work at every uh, every level from the guy I've met. Works it's in, not going to happen because people follow their pocketbook and not philosophy. I'm talking about innovators. Um, innovators, sure. Not, not every person. I sure. Mean, I mean, sure. there's a guy in India, Harish Hande, who's developed a very successful business going to villages and saying, what are your energy needs? And they'll come in with a little solar panel that's enough to power some sewing machines, and that changes lives. And they get on the internet, and that changes lives. They shouldn't ask, what are your needs? They should ask, what are your wants? That's very different. <laughs> when Start Talk continues, more of my interview with Vice President Al Gore. Welcome back to Star Talk. I'm with Maeve Higgins, my co-host. Maeve. Hey. Uh, Andrew Revkin, do you do you tweet? I do. You, what's, what's your Twitter handle? At Revkin. At Revkin, R-E-V-K-I-N. I yeah. wish it was something really inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> like you're like, I can't say. He's a professional uh, here. Okay? I, teach, I teach Twitter, too. <laughs> uh, before the break, we were talking about clean energy and mm -hmm. possible tech solutions to it. And uh, we all dream of a world of limitless energy. Right? Why not? In fact, in the 60s, mm -hmm. when we imagined a future, what we didn't really get right was that information would be unlimited, but not the energy. Yeah. That's what we didn't get right. And if you have unlimited energy, then flying cars are a nothing, right? Just fly yeah. your car. Yeah. Right? And so I wonder, can we have a world with limitless energy? Brought it up with Al. Let's see what he had to say about it. So the calculation goes as follows. Mm -hmm. The world gets as much energy from the sun in one hour to power the entire global economy for a full year. So it may not be literally limitless, but that's close enough. Mm -hmm. And as we improve the fraction of that energy that we can harvest profitably, then we do approach a point where energy is abundant and very cheap. And to use a geeky economic phrase, it has zero marginal cost, meaning, of course, that after you build the solar installation, the next kilowatt hour is for free. That's not the same as with a coal-fired generating plant. You gotta you back gotta, up the train. Hey, you gotta buy the coal, you gotta do all that stuff, mm -hmm. and you gotta deal with the pollution also. We're now dumping all that pollution into the atmosphere as if it's an open sewer, 110 million tons every day. We gotta stop that. It's not working for us. But again, on the opportunity side, if these new renewable energy sources get cheap enough, then projects like desalination become a lot more Which are feasible. energy intensive, yeah. So uh, limitless energy, what a future yeah. that might be. So I have to clarify something that he said. Yes, you can add up the total energy we receive from the sun and say it would drive our in an hour. But of course, some of that energy is actually keeping our plants alive. <laughs> you can't just take all the solar energy that's hitting Earth and then drive human needs, right? The rest of life on Earth lives off the sun. So maybe give them 20 minutes <laughs> and then the rest of them, nom, 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 take that sun energy. Yeah, we'll take the rest of that, damn it, because we're the humans. Uh, just to be clear, there are parts of the world that need the sun. But, um, and of course, you took away all the sun, then all the light then Earth would, would plunge into darkness and cold, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So just, just to be clear. But the, the calculation is still fascinating to do. 
We have. You get a sense of how much energy there is. So, as a journalist, have you thought about this and you see any downside to this? To having basically as much energy as we need? Yeah. No, no. Uh, I did write a piece a few years back where I kind of had this dream. I literally had a dream. What if we had the perfect energy source? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's like saran wrap or something and it just does that. You got energy wherever you need it. Does it end all of our problems? Wait, what does it have to do with saran wrap? Well, it's like some kind of super cheap material, you just sort of put it around and okay, okay. have limitless energy. Um, we have limitless computing now, right? Yeah. We don't even think of it. You have, you know, uh, we have we have birthday cards that have chips in them that sing mm. happy birthday to you that has more what? power than... <laughs> what? You never got no. one of those? No. <laughs> okay, yeah, go no, on. But, but what you said, actually, and I hadn't thought about it, but it's true. Mm -hmm. It's like the this wonderful thing, the, the World Wide Web, which is supposed to connect us. Uh, if you don't use it in a certain way, it actually isolates you from everyone you, you, because you just cluster with your own type wherever they are in the world. So, so it, energy is the same. Uh, if you don't use it, if you have abundance um, and you don't think about things like biodiversity or... Or what do you do with the salt from that desalination plant? Or um, those kinds of things. You could still have a world that you would not be proud of necessarily. I just wonder if there's no end of unforeseen consequences. Because it's one of these, be careful what you wish for. Right, because yeah. as well, the immediate thing I think of if there was like unlimited energy is like all the time that you would save. And like say if you could just, like having a dishwasher. Right. And you could save all that time. But I also think people are bad with time on their hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. Busy. <laughs> no, 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 no but, that, no, but that's where you come in. Entertainment. <laughs> oh, entertainment. Yeah. So, so the stock and entertainment goes Absolutely. up. Actually, I, oh, I've, been, would have more I've been asking people recently whether uh, a sustainability, in a world like where we're all not poor and all energized, you're, you're going to need entertainment more than ever. So actually, I thought it's really a sustainability thing to think about entertainment it's it's like a part of our sustainable development. In fact, entertainment is entertainment. kind of on the rise. Look at you know the the rise of the re-rise of television and what yeah. role it's so playing. In all these lives. people who used to be coal miners will be like YouTube stars now. Yeah. <laughs> How to get the coal out of your face? Well, Melinda Gates, you know Bill and Melinda, they put out their letter every year. And this I did this interview. Uh, I didn't talk to her, but her part of the letter, Melinda Gates, Bill Bill's wife, who runs their foundation, her whole part of that letter was about time because in developing countries, you yeah. Have, the kids are getting the firewood and not going to school, and the girls are not going to school, and so well, the, time is time is precious. Mm -hmm. uh, in my last clip with Al Gore, we just explored how do you balance ethics with this? Because if you have the power to make a decision, yeah. that could be good in one way, but maybe not ethically the right mm -hmm. thing. So let's let's get a politician's an informed politician's perspective on this. Go. Well, I'll give you one concrete example when I presided over the legislation that did the human genome initiative, we required that 2% of it go into ethical oh, okay. studies to make sure that there was adequate attention being paid to that. And they have done a lot of impressive work, but it's not that simple. We all have to be prepared to engage in conversations about some of the difficult choices that will soon be available to us, like trait selection, like uh, crossing species boundaries. You know about spider goats? I'll give you a quick example. Sounds interesting. Yeah, well, <laughs> spider goats. <laughs> spider spider silk is very valuable. It has the tensile strength and lightness. It has unique characteristics, and it's it's sought after. But you can't farm spiders. They're cannibalistic and aggressive, and that's those are only two of the reasons I don't want to farm so spiders. So by spider silk, you mean that with which they make their webs? Yes, okay. that's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. So here's what you can do now, and it is being done. You can splice the genes from orb-weaving spiders into goats and produce spider goats, which mercifully look like goats. 
but they secrete spider silk in their milk through their udders where it can be strained and retrieved in large quantities. And there are now herds of spider goats. One of them's in Utah. Uh, you okay with that? Completely. Okay. Some people. Completely. Some people wonder, okay. So. By the way, that's I, a reminder yeah. of the commonality of all life on Earth, that we yeah. all share DNA in fundamental deep ways. It is. However, I'm okay with that too. But there's some things that you and I both might think press the boundaries of what we think needs a little more thought and study. What about genetic modification of human babies to enhance this function or that function or cosmetic? Yeah, or, cosmetic. Or pick the mm -hmm. eye color, the hair color, what, mm -hmm. whatever. Designer babies. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, that, that gets I'm creepy. Not so cool. And creepy is the word that comes up mm -hmm. a lot. But here's an example: the people who say "don't cross species," that's not. Yeah. No, no. It's like pause. Suppose I'm making this yeah. up now, but suppose. We go to the newt, and we find the gene that enables it to regenerate its limbs. Yeah. And we go to the veteran and say, I'm putting yeah. a newt gene in you. Now your limbs get regenerated that had just been blown off serving us in yeah. the military. Yeah, yeah. Is anyone going to say no to that? Of course, no, of course, of course not. not. And, and that's why when you, you opened your question with uh -huh. the concept of fear, I wanted to right away say, let's look at the fantastic and exciting opportunities. But yes, there are some things that we need to be cautious about. So, Andrew, you, if I understand the data correctly, you advised the Pope on his <laughs> recent encyclical? That's way overplaying. Okay. <laughs> but I have a quote yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a quote here that came out of that those collaborations. Yeah. Nowadays, man finds himself to be a technical giant and an ethical child. That was said, spoken by a, a cardinal who's one of the Pope's kind of posse from, okay. he's from Hunter. It sounds like someone who's just afraid of technology. But it was this big yeah. meet, but it was a great meeting and it, it art articulates, yes, you need to have an argument of where the science is in the same room with people who are exploring those other components. The Vatican in 2014, ahead of the encyclical, they had a meeting with Nobel Prize winners and economists and philosophers. And, and uh, in the end, one of the world's great oceanographers, some echoing this, I asked him, uh, Walter Monk, I said, what, you know, how's this going to work out? He said, it'll take a miracle of love and unselfishness this century, basically. Mm. And I thought, okay. Or just a new invention. So, Maeve, what's your, what's your take on this? <laughs> well, I was thinking if we do save all this time by, get, by getting all this new energy, then we could devote, our, uh, devote that time to thinking. <laughs> that, we can it's think again. Oh my gosh! <laughs> that's my, oh my um, gosh. that's my takeout. I like I'm that. Get back in my horn. Maeve, that's we'll, we will end on that note. Maeve, you've been listening and possibly even watching this episode of Star Talk, featuring my interview with Al Gore. Andrew Revkin, thanks for once again being on Star Talk. And Maeve, always had good to have you back. Maeve, love having you. I am Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist, and as always, I bid you to keep looking at it.